words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. So as I was discussing in, in the children's sermon, all of our passages, passages today are, are linked together. To, to extend on that point, I'm going to link in our epistle lesson, and then I'm going to spend the vast majority of our time looking at our Old Testament uh, lesson, Hannah's prayer from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. So... It's because, really, when, 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 if you look closely or you remember from last week, our epistle lesson is exactly the same as it was last week. Um, and that's not an accident. Um, the latter part, in the Book of Common Prayer for our reading, the latter part of that passage was our lesson for last week. And I extended it to include the former. The latter part talks about Jesus being the shepherd and overseer of our souls, which fit with Good Shepherd Sunday, as we were talking about last week. But the precursor to that, the context of that, is about obeying the civil authorities and obeying even bad masters. And suffering for the good, not just suffering for evil. So the epistle reading for this week in the Book of Common Prayer was actually the first part of that passage about that about obeying civil authorities, honoring the king, and suffering for uh, suffering for uh, good as well as evil. That's much more commendable, and not the second half. So what I did is I just extended the passage in both directions and left it the same for both, both weeks. But how do we have this idea of you know honoring the king, honoring the emperor, honoring your masters, and obeying all of these authorities? How can we understand that in this context with these other passages. Well, if if Christ is the one in charge, the one who, as Hannah says, holds up the pillars of the earth, if he's the one engineering all of these reversals that I talked about in the children's sermon in the end, that he's the one who makes the weak strong, that he's the one that fills the hungry, that he's the one that brings, brings down the mighty, then we can, as 1 Peter says, honor even civil authorities. Even civil authorities that might not be worthy of honor. Because why? Behind these civil authorities is the one who really holds the power. And that in the end, they, we know, mighty as they are, they will be brought down. And the weak will be lifted up. And so, that's where First Peter, the 1 Peter passage fits in to this whole scheme about God holding up the pillars of the earth and, and, and reversing Hannah's situation in the Old Testament, as well as reversing the sorrow that we read about in the Gospel passage. So, with that said, I want to transition to the first um, uh, Old Testament, the Old Testament reading from Hannah's prayer. And I want to Walk us through this prayer. First, we're going to talk about the background. Who is Hannah? What is her situation? That's a story probably familiar to most of us. 
but the, and then look at the prayer itself, and then try to get what is the main point of this prayer. What is she really getting at? Because it's quite fascinating when you look at it uh, line by line. So we're introduced to Hannah in First Samuel chapter one, the previous chapter. She was the first wife of Elkanah, an Ephraimite. And Elkanah then took a second wife named Penina, which would uh, be humiliating enough for Hannah, perhaps, uh, her husband getting a second wife. But compounding Hannah's grief is the fact that Penina was able to conceive and bear children, while Hannah remained barren and, and without children. And this is, a, of course, a, a real shame for her, especially in an ancient Near Eastern culture. Lest we read biblical accounts of the sorrows of barren women like Sarah and Rachel, or Samson's mother, or Hannah, or Elizabeth, and assume this is merely a, a cultural thing, well in their culture having children was important, I would add that children have been considered a blessing across cultures and throughout the vast majority of human history. The last half century aside, where the Western world has begun to view children as a liability rather than an asset that interferes with one's liberation or earning potential is, is really the aberration that's facilitated only by technology and in no way should be considered the norm. It is normal if we read these accounts over and over again in Scripture of women who are barren, and this is actually a, a source of great sorrow for them. And so this is true of Hannah. And we see that this problematic household, um, things are getting worse, and that uh, a rivalry emerges between Hannah and Penina. Uh, Elkanah, says in, in chapter 1, loved Hannah more and tried to comfort her in her barrenness. And Penina, though blessed with children by Elkanah, was jealous of the greater attention her husband gave to Hannah and would try to aggravate Hannah because of it, hold it over her head that she was blessed to have lots of children while Hannah was not. So Samuel's history of the rise of King David, which is what 1 Samuel is really about, begins with a very disordered and chaotic household. Very quickly, in chapter 1, we see that this disorder of the household is not limited to Elkanah. It's actually, it reflects the state of the disorder in Israel at the time. Eli, the high priest, serves in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These sons serve as priests before the Lord with him. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, just after our passage that we're going to be looking at today, it records the abuses of these rebellious and immoral men who made a mockery of the sacrifices brought by the people to offer to God. But even before we get to chapter 2, where we see those lists of uh, abuses, we get a sense that all is not right with the worship in Israel, even in, in uh, chapter 1. 
Elkanah, in chapter 1, takes his family to the tabernacle in Shiloh to worship and offer sacrifices as he does every year. And while there, Hannah is pouring out her burdens to God in prayer. The text said that she was weeping as she prayed silently. This was not a quick prayer. For chapter 1, verse 12 says that she spent a great deal of time in prayer before the Lord, asking for a son whom she promises to dedicate to the Lord's service, should he grant her request. What does Eli do, if you remember the story? Eli looks at this pious display, a woman engaged in fervent, extended, silent prayer while weeping, and what does he conclude from this? She must be drunk. Did you ever notice that? How do you see a woman praying like Hannah is fervently and conclude she must be drunk unless perhaps Eli has seen quite a few people coming into the tabernacle to worship who are drunk? Hannah's praying for a long time with tears, and Eli sees this as strange. Perhaps he had become accustomed to people coming up to the tabernacle and quickly, quickly going through the motions of offering their sacrifices and leaving. And those who tended to linger around and were emotionally moving their lips without making a sound were drunk people. Which tells us that perhaps the spiritual state of Israel's uh, worship at this time is not strong. Hannah explains to Eli that she was just praying and that she was praying fervently because she desired a son from the Lord and that she would dedicate the son to the Lord should God grant her request. So upon hearing this, Eli pronounces a blessing on Hannah in verse 17 of chapter 1. And the next day, Elkanah returns home with his family. Hannah's prayer is answered. And she became pregnant and had a son whom she named Samuel. Which is a play on the Hebrew word for ask. She says his name is Samuel, for I've asked him of the Lord. Once the child was weaned, Hannah kept her promise and dedicated her son to the Lord's service in the temple. On the occasion of Samuel's dedication, Hannah prays the prayer that is our Old Testament text this morning, which is filled with some very rich theology. In Hannah's prayer of dedication and thanksgiving, there's, a very, there's very little space dedicated to her particular circumstances as a previously barren woman. There's only one mention of that in the prayer. In verse 5 we see, Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. That's the last lines there in verse 5. Around that statement, we could take it, we could look at the, the the prayer, that statement is really the centerpiece of the prayer. And around that statement, we can identify a chiasm in the structure of the prayer. So a chiasm, for those of you who might not be familiar with that word, 
is a, an ancient Hebrew literary structure to a poem or a song or a prayer, where your main thought is at the very center. And then there are parallelisms that uh, branch off of that, um, going from the beginning to the end. So what I'm going to try to map out for you is that you're going to see a parallel in the first lines and in the last lines of that prayer. And as you move through the poem, the second set, the second thought there is parallel to the second to last thought. So it's like climbing two ladders toward the center of the poem, which where you find your main point. And that is where we see a reference to Hannah's barrenness. Okay? But so that's the central point. But there's uh, in that parallel structure, it's a way of communicating thoughts that are comparable to each other. Okay, so um, let's uh, try to trace this out. Um, in verse 1, take a look at verse 1. It says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. That parallels the last two lines in the prayer, where a horn is also mentioned. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Lifting up the horn was a sign of strength and victory in battle over your enemies. Hannah's proclaiming that God has given her victory, my horn is lifted up, in taking her barrenness away. And then at the end of the prayer, the horn is referenced again in terms of an instrument from which oil is poured out on an anointed king. So we've got two mentions of that word horn. She's talking about lifting it up in battle, and then in the first lines, and then a horn of oil being poured out on the king. These two things are connected. Hannah's proclaiming that God has given her victory in her barrenness, and, and, and taking her barrenness away, and then at the end of the prayer, horn... Um, used to pour oil on the king. She's connecting her personal present victory here to the future victory of a coming king of Israel who is God's chosen one. This points to David in the immediate context of 1 Samuel, who is the main figure in 1 Samuel. But it also looks to Christ for its ultimate fulfillment. In the second half of verse 1, next lines, verse 1, we read, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Compare this personal joy that Hannah is experiencing in the face of her enemies to the adversaries spoken of at the beginning of verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So you have a parallelism there in her personal enemies and the adversaries of God. Why can she smile at her enemies? Because she recognizes that her present enemies are like God's adversaries. Who God will judge in the future. There's an important Application. We might ask, are our enemies 
God's enemies. Could we pray that? Like Hannah? Do we love what God loves and hate what God hates? If we cannot honestly say that all our enemies are not God's enemies, maybe they shouldn't be ours either. We should then seek reconciliation rather than continuing to squabble with other members of the family of God. For those who are true enemies, we need not be fearful, but we can smile at them knowing that God is judge and that the just judge of all the earth shall do right. In verse 2, Hannah acknowledges three characteristics of Yahweh, but articulates them in a negative way. We see God's purity. No one is holy like the Lord, she says. We see his singularity. There is no one other than you. And we see his strength. There is no rock like our God. There are many references, particularly throughout the Psalms, where God is spoken of as a rock. In fact, we quote Psalm 19.14 at the beginning of our sermons. I just did at the beginning of this sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength, or, depending on your translation, our rock. Our rock and our redeemer. Hannah is not referring to a pebble here that might skip across the pond, but an immovable mountain on which one can stand and not worry about it giving way. The parallel lines for these uh, for verse 2 are found at the end of verse 9, another reference to strength. For by his own, we can insert his own strength, for by his own strength, no man shall prevail. So we've got God's strength, who is, his strength is incomparable, his holiness is incomparable, his existence is unlike anyone else, and in contrast, by no man's mere strength shall he prevail, either now or in the future. Continuing on, verse 3. Hannah shifts from speaking of God in the third person to speaking in the second person. And she also shifts from the indicative, this is what God is, to speaking in an imperative tone. Notice that? <coughs> She's turned away from talking about God and talking to someone. You talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. You keep silent. You watch your speech. Why? Because the Lord knows what you say and what you do, and he weighs your actions. He evaluates what people say and do. Similarly, go down to verse 9. What does she say? He will guard the feet of his saints. In other words, depending on your translation, he knows where his saints are and watches over them. 
There's the, the knowledge connection. He knows his saints and watches over them. He has a knowledge. He's the God of knowledge. But the wicked shall be what? Silent in darkness. You, in other words, if we put these two together, the message here is you be silent. Stop speaking arrogantly now, in present tense, verse 3, lest you be like the wicked, verse 9, who one day will be silenced in darkness. Then, in verses 4 through 8, we see a series of reversals. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, while those who have stumbled are girded with strength. Hannah is framing this answer to her prayer in terms of warfare. Those that had the best weapons and the best training in battle are broken. And those who are stumbling along in the mud are given strength to take up the fight again. Then she moves from the warfare imagery to a domestic economic metaphor. Those who were full and had plenty to eat and plenty of income and never did without are the ones that have become hired hands. Taking any job they can find to earn money to buy bread so that they don't starve. Meanwhile, it is those who are hungry and perhaps suffering from malnutrition and who are used to going without. They're the ones who have ceased to hunger. Then you have the only mention of barrenness. The barren women have borne seven children, while those who have many children have become feeble. So we have three sets, mighty and stumbling, hungry and full, barren, and those being blessed with children. Okay, four, four, five. This couplet in verse 5 on barrenness does not have a counterpart in verses 6 through 8. As the other two do. We're going to see. Mighty strong, uh, the strong and weak, the full and the hungry have a counterpart in verses 6 to 8 that the barrenness does not have. This is, I would argue, the centerpiece of the prayer and stands by itself. This is the root, the cause of this, all of this thanksgiving. But notice the change in the language in verses 6 to 8. How it differs from verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, Hannah speaking as a kind of third-party observer. The voice is passive. It's like she's observing a battle, and inexplicably, the bows of the mighty are broken. Those stumbling along have retained, regained their footing and have renewed their strength and are charging toward and somehow... Uh, they're charging onward somehow against all odds. They overcome the enemy and win the battle. She's standing there describing, again, like a, a third party just witnessing the inexplicable. Those who were the epitome of financial security and lacking nothing. Those who were enjoying their afternoons on the golf course and their weekends on a tropical vacation. You now see them working as janitors. 
scrubbing toilets and garbage men just trying to earn enough to put food on the table. Those who were hungry and going without all of a sudden have more than they could ever want. Those who you've seen go for years without children, who you presume would, were unable to have children at all, all of a sudden have seven. And those who had large families, their children are dying. What's happening? These are inexplicable and unexpected surprises that she's just watching from the outside. But then we get the counterpart to this in 6 through 8. Look at how her voice changes. Hannah speaks in the active voice rather than the passive. Not just these things have happened, but speaking of with a subject, God, and an active verb. The one behind the scenes, the one who holds up the pillars of the earth, verse 8, is actively bringing about these surprising results. This unlikely reversal is not a surprise if it is actively being brought about by the one who literally holds up the earth in its place. Notice, the Lord, subject, kills, active voice, and makes active voice alive. He brings active voice down to the grave and brings active voice up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings love and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ashy to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. It's like Hannah's describing things empirically in verses 4 and 5. This is just what I see happening. No explanation for it. And then in 6 through 8, is looking behind the curtain to see that behind these strange reversals is Yahweh actively bringing them about. I've described the chiasm of this prayer. So, what's the critical point here of application? If we think critically about this text, we might raise the question as to, as to how Hannah could be so presumptuous as to connect an answer to her prayer for a son to God's plans for the redemption of Israel. Think about that. Imagine praying for someone you know who was desirous of having a baby. They finally end up getting pregnant. And after having the baby, they come to church and they're praising God for victory over their enemies and talking about how because of the birth of their child, the poor and the hungry are fed and the mighty are brought down. Imagine that. Would we not all think that such a person was a little bit out there? In their theology. Of course we would. Who is she to presume that the world is now made right or being made right simply because she got an answer to a prayer that she wanted? 
What if I am a little bit out there? What if I suggested that Hannah actually gives us a model of exactly how we should pray? What if we pray in such a way so as to see our blessings and answers to prayer as part of God's sovereign plan of redemption for the world? What do I mean by that? God does all things in accordance with his sovereign will. Does he not? We pray that God would give us our daily bread. We prayed that this morning. Why did God give you your daily bread today? To give you strength and sustenance. Why did he why did he do that, we might ask? So that you could go out and serve him and do your part, however infinitesimally small, to spread the good news of the kingdom. If you're praying for a job, or for a better job, is this really just a private concern? Does it have nothing to do with the, the grand scheme of things? Are you asking just for a favor from God that would allow you to earn more money and live a more comfortable life? When we pray for safety as we travel, why do we do that? When we pray for our civil government, why do we do that? Are we asking that God would help us get civil leaders that will vote for things, that will bring people in our group, whatever constitutes the hour, more money or privileges? When we pray for comfort for families of those who have died, when we pray for the recovery of a loved one who is sick or in need of healing, what are we praying for exactly? Are we simply asking God that they get better so that we can go on about our lives pain-free and stress-free? Are we asking God simply to do a special favor for us that is outside of his plan for the world throughout eternity, throughout history? Or, in following here, are we praying that God will grant us our requests so that his will will be accomplished in the world. Let me ask it this way. Does God answer your prayer because he took a five-minute break from sovereignly governing the universe to do some personal favors to make your life better? Or does God answer your prayer because the answer to prayer is in accordance with his overall redemptive plan for the universe. If it's the latter, then every gift and blessing and answer to prayer that we receive is in some ways connected to God's redemptive work in the world in restoring all things. Thus Hannah can pray my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Because this answer to prayer.
prayer in giving this barren woman a child is part of God's overall plan for Israel. Hannah can rejoice in this answer to her prayer that God will one day judge the ends of the earth, that he will make all things right, that he will feed the hungry and bring down the mighty who arrogantly speak against him. So how do we pray? Do we go to God essentially asking God to take a break from his busy schedule? To do us a personal favor? Or are all of our prayers filtered through that first petition in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as in heaven. Now, Please do not take this as an instruction not to pray for little things. By all means, pray for little things. God is concerned about them too. My point here is that God's concern for our little things in life are not divorced from his overall plan. All of these add up to his great work that he is doing. That includes the no's that he gives us, right? But what about the yeses? When God answers prayer, do we take that answer to prayer and say, Oh, thank you, that makes my life easier. I can go on my way. Or do we thank him in connection, take our blessings and connect them to God's broader work in the world and say, Thank you, God, for giving me this and blessing me with this, for answering my prayer. And this is a sign and a time for me to take that answer to prayer, that blessing, and to rejoice in what you're doing in the grand scheme of things. And that in some way, this blessing to me is part of and a sign of what you're ultimately going to bring about in restoring all things. You see that? I think that's what we get from Hannah's prayer. That Hannah, in praising God for a personal need of a son, can see this as part of God's larger plan for the redemption of Israel. And in Hannah's case, it actually is. It really is closely connected. It's why it's there at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Samuel is going to be the last judge, essentially. He's the one who is going to anoint David, the king of Israel. And he's the one who is going to bring about reform in Israel. So it really is truly tied together with God's overall plan. Right? For Israel. But so are our prayers, even the little things, in some way, connected to God, making everything right in the world. So we can turn to Him and thank Him even for little things, and say, thank you, these little blessings you give us, this little daily bread you give us, you fed us for another meal. It is a sign of your faithfulness, it is a sign of your continuing goodness to us, it's a sign of what you're going to do in the future, in restoring all things. Making all things right. Making the hungry full. Making the weak strong. And bringing down those who are strong now, who appear to be. And really are relying only on the one who holds up the pillars of the earth. For not only their daily bread, but every breath. Let's pray.